Good afternoon. Thanks so much for spending your lunch hour with us today. Hopefully you've mostly thought out and things are getting back to normal for you. My name is Caitlin Baggett Davis. I'm City Club of Portland's program committee chair. As we begin, I want to acknowledge that the land we're on is native land and was stolen from people who lived here for thousands of years. Here in the Portland region, this land is the territory of the Multnomah, Kathlamet, and Clackamas, the Tualatin, Kalapuya, and Malala, the Wasco, Kats, and many other indigenous people who've known the power and beauty of the Columbia and Willamette Rivers, lived here, raised their families, built communities and traditions that live on. Together, we recognize their unbreakable connections to this land, and we honor the resilience of their ancestors and the hope for future generations. Thank you. I'm so glad to be partnering with the Wayne Morse Center at the University of Oregon to bring you today's presentation from the Wayne Morse Chair of Politics and Law, Dr. Francoise Bayless. Her presentation will be followed by an interview with Dr. Larry Wallach, former Dean at the PSU College of Urban and Public Affairs and Professor Emeritus of the OHSU PSU School of Public Health. Francoise Bayless is a philosopher whose innovative work in bioethics at the intersection of policy and practice has stretched the very boundaries of the field. With a personal mantra to make the powerful care, Dr. Bayless contributes to policymaking through her research, service on national committees, and public education. This work is largely focused on issues of social justice. In 2017, she was awarded the Canadian Bioethics Society Lifetime Achievement Award. Her recent book, Altered Inheritance, CRISPR and the Ethics of Human Genome Editing, examines a new era of human evolution where doctors are increasingly able to edit our genes. It asks, what if changes intended for good turn out to have unforeseen negative consequences? What if gene editing widens economic and social divides? And can we leave these big questions about humanity only to scientists and doctors in these fields? You may also have seen Dr. Bayless's recent column in the Portland Tribune about how we're distributing vaccines, not just within the US, but around the world. Our conversations today will touch on all of these topics. Now, I know that Dr. Bayless and Dr. Wallach have a lot they want to talk about. So I'll just say a few quick things and then we'll begin the program. First, thank you to our seasoned sponsors, Chevron, The Standard, and Wells Fargo for making our State of the Possible series possible. I'd also like to thank our supporting sponsors, Kaiser Permanente and Tonkin Torp, and our partners at Pamplin Media, X-Ray FM, and Merge Design. If you're ever unable to watch our forums live, you can listen via X-Ray stations, including 91.1 FM and 107.1 FM. And you can also continue to watch on our YouTube channel. I also want to remind you before we start that you can ask questions at any time during today's conversation. Just email us at questions at pdxcityclub.org or tweet at pdxcityclub using the hashtag state of the possible. Now, 
It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Francoise Bayless. Well, let me start by saying thank you for that very kind introduction and also a very sincere thanks to the Wayne Moore Center for Law and Politics for the privilege of holding that chair for 2020 and 2021. More generally, I wanna thank you for listening in. Uh, it's always a pleasure for me to have the opportunity to share some of my thoughts on my current work. And that work right now is on heritable human genome editing and specifically CRISPR technology, as well as some of the challenges with the current pandemic, COVID-19. Let me start with a few comments about my recent book called Altered Inheritance. It's a book that's intended for a general educated audience. It's for people like you who want to become informed about contemporary science and the possibilities, and who don't only want to be informed, but actually want to find ways to in influence the direction of that science. So a lot of my book is about both science literacy and ethics literacy. How do we have a conversation across interests, across cultures, across disciplines? We can think of many ways in which we need to bring people together in order to think about the world that we're creating. So let me say just a few words about the science so that we're sort of all on the same page. Genome editing became a thing that people talked about in a public way, really only within the last few years. And many people would say it starts with 2012, when we have the science done by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, both women who recently received a Nobel Prize for actually putting the science out there and anticipating the way it would have huge, drastic changes on the possible. CRISPR technology is the technology that allows scientists to make changes to DNA, including human DNA. And they do this by being able to cut the DNA and then delete information that they don't want in that strand of DNA or add information that they think is important for that strand of DNA to work properly, or just simply to make a cut and modify the functioning of the genes. What's important for you to know is not all the intricacies of that science, but the following. This technology can target one of two kinds of cells and it can have one of two kinds of objectives. The two kinds of cells. Well, you can use this technology to change somatic cells. And somatic cells are just all of your body cells, your hair cells, your liver cells, your blood cells. Or you can use this technology to change your reproductive cells. That would be, for example, egg and sperm or the very early human embryo. The difference between these two cells and the types of changes that you can make is that in the first instance, you're looking at making changes to a human who exists and you're hoping in a first instance anyhow, to be able to offer treatments to that person by changing their DNA. The second type of cell, the reproductive cell, if you make those kinds of changes, you're making it in tissue, 
that might one day go on to become a human being. And that human being will have had their reproductive tissues modified by this technology so that now you have what's called a heritable genome edit. So the main thing for you to understand is we can use this technology to make changes in individuals. We can use this technology to make changes for generations upon generations. It's the same science, two different kinds of goals. The other thing that's important to understand in addition to two kinds of cells is two kinds of objectives. One of them has to do with treatments. How can we use this technology to address disease? The other has to do with enhancements. How can we use this technology to build better humans? Now, you'll appreciate there's some overlap between them, but there are also important differences. So what I want you to think about with me for a minute is why are people excited about this technology? And I want to make this point by reading for you um, from my book, Altered Inheritance. I'm thinking you can see it there. Um, because I think it's a, a very poignant passage, and I think it helps to make the point very clearly. So bear with me. At the age of 44, Joe, a Boston police officer, is diagnosed with Huntington's disease. It's a progressive brain disorder. Symptoms of Huntington's disease usually appear in a person's 30s or 40s and initially include involuntary jerking and twitching movements, as well as subtle emotional difficulties, as well as disorganized thinking. As the disease progresses, problems develop and cognitive abilities are impaired. Now, there are medications to help alleviate these symptoms but there is no cure. Most people with Huntington's disease will die of this illness 15 to 20 years after the onset of symptoms. Now, this diagnosis for Joe is just the beginning of his nightmare because at the same time he learns that he has this illness, he learns that he may have passed it on to his adult children. They each have a 50% chance of having inherited the disorder. Now, I want you to stop and think about the following. Imagine just for a moment that you are a parent of a child with a diagnosis of a fatal disease. What would you do to save your child's life? When a child has a fatal illness, it's common for distraught parents to say that they would offer up their lives in exchange for their child's life. Knowing this kind of bartering is only wishful thinking, however, they may also pray for a miracle. And while some parents will pray, other parents dream. They dream of an alternate reality in which their child's death is not inevitable. That dream has a name, CRISPR. So for patients who are faced with a terrible diagnosis that not only is going to shorten their life, but possibly that they have passed on this illness to their children and their children will have a similar consequence, they're really quite excited about technology that could help with devastating illnesses. The thing is, this is a tool. Technology can be used for good or ill. Everything depends on your perspective. 
And what's interesting here is that while many people, and I might go so far as to say most people, would be sympathetic to the story that I've just shared with you, they hesitate with respect to the idea of making changes to the germline because the worry then is that it will be passed on and on and on. And perhaps in a context where it's evidence of hubris on our part to think that we know what changes we should make today to make for a better world for other people. And the same thing happens then with respect to disagreements or perspectives about enhancement. Should we just be treating people that have something which we recognize as a disease? Or should we be looking to improve the average human to make them superhuman? And in that context, many of you will have heard about designer babies. And lots of people have different ideas about who or what designer babies are. And many people go back to the birth of the first IVF baby. That's Louise Brown. And that actually goes back to 1978. And at the time, there are all kinds of dire predictions about what this would be. And many people today will say, well, that was an overreaction. Look at all of the IVF babies walking amongst us, and they're perfectly fine. Now, we don't have to agree or disagree about that technology, but what I want to leave you with is the idea that that's actually not a designer baby. And the reason it's not a designer baby is that while it was amazing technology for the time, the first time that human genetic material, egg and embryo, was brought together outside of the human body, then transferred back, there was implantation, there was gestation, there was birth, and there is now an adult woman by the name of Louise Brown who has had her own children. But that did not involve making changes to DNA. That involved wondrous technology, but it stayed within the realm of what was naturally possible. In fact, all that was happening initially was circumventing a blocked fallopian tube. The egg and sperm could not travel through the fallopian tube because it was blocked. And so human ingenuity was to do an end run around the blockage. That's not a designer baby. We do, however, have some designer babies, and the most recent ones, the most dramatic ones, are CRISPR babies. There are three of them that we know of in the world, and they are the result of science technology that was made public in December, sorry, November and December, depending on how you think about what making something public means, um, of 2018. Embryos were edited in a lab in theory, to give the newborns resistance to HIV. Now, I don't want to debate the science, whether it was or wasn't effective. I want us to think about the goal or objective. It was to change the DNA of those babies so that in theory, they would have resistance to HIV. When you've made that kind of change, you have created a designer baby. Now, I just want to, in the few minutes I have left of sort of introductory remarks, point out to you that when we think about that technology, the technology of manipulating the early embryo, for example, it behooves us to think about the potential benefits and the potential harms. And what I want you to appreciate is that those benefits and harms 
are experienced by a wide variety of people. First and foremost, they are experienced by the women, the women that have to undergo a technique called hyperstimulation in order to produce the eggs, the women who would accept the transfer of a genetically modified embryo and gestate that. And too often, in the context of this discussion and debate, we pay no attention to the women. We act as if these reproductive tissues are just sitting there on the shelf for a scientist to go and collect and start tinkering with in his or her lab. So we need to think about the benefits and harms to women. We need to think about the benefits and harms to the prospective parents. We certainly need to think about the benefits and harms to the children who would be born of this technology. But then more broadly, even if you're not intimately connected with the use of this technology, it has an impact on society and it has an impact on the gene pool. And in my own work, I have argued that the human genome belongs to all of us. Now, I understand that that's not in a strict sense true, but it's a bit of a metaphor for saying we are of a kind, we are of a species. And if some amongst us want to tinker with that and change that, we have a right to be consulted, to be involved in that conversation. We have a right to say something other than just, well, it may or may not have physical harms. We have a right to be concerned about things like differential access to technology that likely will be very expensive. We might have an opinion about the risk of increased discrimination if we think about people who are different or differently um, engaged in the world as disabled when they wouldn't apply that same description to themselves. We might have real concerns about opportunity costs. If you're spending money and time and talent on this research, what are you not spending money, time and talent on? Really, I think part of what's at issue here is what are our priorities? And I just want to read for you again one other quick excerpt from my book, this time on enhancement, because this is what ultimately would be of interest to many scientists. It's actually building better humans. So I'm reading, I'm at a small dinner party in London, England. The conversation has turned to one of my favorite topics, using genome editing to build better humans. With considerable rhetorical flourish, my host, Brian Simmons, asks, why wouldn't I want to be Hussein Bolt? Indeed, why not? Bolt is an eight-time Olympic gold medalist and an 11-time world champion. He's widely recognized to be the greatest sprinter of all time. Who wouldn't want to run in his shoes? My host is not a spry elite athlete who's looking for a competitive edge. He's an active, retired gentleman who used to participate in several amateur sports, including climbing, fencing, and sailing. Like many of his generation, he's acutely aware of the age-related muscle loss and increasingly limited mobility. He doesn't envision using genome editing technology to repair and strengthen his aged muscles, but rather imagines the life of his children, maybe his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. And if the use of genome editing to maximize their athletic performance 
was safe and effective. Why not? The reason I read you this excerpt is because in important respects, at some level, there will not be a robust divide between what's a treatment and what's an enhancement. And so at the end of the day, we need to worry about a world we're building where there will be the haves and the have-nots, those who can access this technology and those for whom it will be unavailable for any kind of reason. I'm gonna stop there because I think I've given you a little bit of a flavor of my book. I've hopefully given you enough of a background in terms of some of the science issues that we can now really have a conversation about the ethics, about the world we want to live in. Well, Dr. Bayless, thank you so much uh, for that interesting presentation and also for this incredible body of work that you've been pursuing. I want to start off with a question uh, that maybe follows on a distinction you made. You seem to be somewhat enthusiastic about somatic gene genome editing, editing that would focus on a specific disease and a specific individual, but less so about heritable genome editing that might uh, affect future generations. Have I got that right? And can you explain and clarify the difference between these two things? Um, yes, you do have that right. Um, so the reason I think it's easy for someone like myself to be very supportive of somatic genome editing is because I can see that as being offered in a context where competent individuals are in a position to weigh up for themselves the consequences of choosing to participate in this research. So one of the things that's really important for people to understand is that People are hopeful that this will be available as a therapeutic intervention, but we're at a research stage. And I think in that context, it's really important that individual people be able to be consulted and to participate in what they're about to do or not do. However, when you think about heritable genome editing, you really are taking on a different kind of project. I wanna suggest it's a project that fits under the realm or the rubric of taking over the human evolutionary story. And I think we ought to have a little bit of humility with respect to what we think that project is about. And so in that context, the reason I'm less enthusiastic about heritable genome editing at this point is because I don't think we've had the kind of broad societal conversation we need to have so that it's a collective decision because in that context, there is no individual person or patient to consult. We're talking about modifying DNA in reproductive tissues. And so in that context, I'm gonna argue the decisions to be made are too important to leave to the scientific community alone. And therefore, at the present time, I'm not enthusiastic about it. Now, could I be? Yes, I'm open to being persuaded um, that this is really important science and that we need to pursue it. But I think that argument has to be presented and all of us have to be able to engage with the claims that are being made. So you've called for a moratorium on this kind of application of the science. And you just said you, you're open to being convinced. What, what's the moratorium about? And what, it, what would it take to convince you that the benefit is worth the risk of this science? 
So a moratorium is a temporary ban. And I, and I want to say it really clearly in that way. So if you look it up, it clearly says temporary ban. So why am I in support of a temporary ban? Because I think we need time for careful reflection. And you cannot have that time if you have designer babies popping up anywhere, everywhere around the globe, because some individual scientists or more accurately scientific team has decided that they're just going to do this. And so in that context, if you have an official moratorium, it's time limited, you have an end date, you have protected space for conversation, for debate. And I think that that's really important. So I'm committed to that idea. And I'm hopeful that we'll use that time well to think through what is it that we think about this science is important and worth pursuing. So to the second part of your question, I'm absolutely open to being persuaded that this is important science. If someone can show me how this will make us, or make for, I should say, how this will make for a better world for us all. I'm not really interested in a technology that is going to help a handful of people. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's not important to care for everyone on this planet. It is. But the fact of the matter is there's only so much time, talent, and money. And so we do have to make choices. And if our scientists are working on this problem, they're not working on some other problem. So we do have to have priorities. And my priorities are going to be to look for science that can help a population. So in your book, in, in the excerpt that you read, I think there was a quote there uh, from the father who said, I would do anything. I would do anything to protect my children. I would do anything to find a cure. I would, I think one of the quotes was, I would, would lay down in the middle of traffic to do that. If, and you might extend this from having current, your current children to children you may have in the future. If that feeling is so great, why would you advocate a moratorium to slow down the science that would respond to the prayers, the cries, the aspirations that these people have for their current children and their future children? Why go slower? Why not go faster? Well, <clears throat> I think it's really important here to remember that distinction that I drew at the beginning between somatic and germline. So at this point in time, I don't have any reservations about investing time, talent, and money to try to develop therapies for existing patients who are suffering. But I think it's a different category of intervention to try to change reproductive tissue because you're not treating a patient in that context. In fact, that human being doesn't exist and doesn't have to come into existence. And so I think that's a fundamentally different kind of issue. And so in that context, some people will say, but I want to have healthy genetically related children. And if you don't develop this technology, then I won't be able to have those children. And for some small segment of society, that statement is true. Now, just to put it in perspective, I've looked at the data for different kinds of illnesses. One of them is cystic fibrosis. And 
I'm not inventing these numbers. Scientists who look at the incidence of that illness in a population, they've looked at it in the United States, for example. You then look at the prospect of two people with cystic fibrosis meeting, falling in love, deciding to have children. And in that context, they would come forward and ask for this technology. Well, how many people are we talking about? It turns out, according to the data, one couple every 15 years. I'm not sure it's justifiable to spend tax dollars, which is very often the money that's invested in basic science, to develop that technology. Now, that does not mean that I don't think we should be investing effort to try to improve treatments that are available for people with cystic fibrosis. We absolutely should. And moreover, we should be looking at a range of options for many of those couples to be able to have children. They just may not be genetically related children. So that's the difference. And I guess at some level, I'm wanting us to say, we shouldn't be understanding families so narrowly that they only depend on genetic ties. We have loads of families where there are no genetic ties and they are loving families. They are families that we recognize and respect, whether they've been created through adoption, through second families, through mergers after divorce, whether they've been created by using existing technologies such as um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So I think that there are ways in which we want to respond as to people as part of a caring community, but I don't see how that commits us to bringing into the world people that did not have to come into being in the first place. Okay, so you've given us a good example, one every one couple every 15 years, but of course the issue is not as much that as what if it's five couples in one year? The, the real issue is who draws the line and where do you draw the line? So you've talked a lot about ethical literacy, you've talked about broad social consensus, as a way of getting people involved to be better consumers of this information. Talk to us a little bit about what it means. How would you develop ethical literacy in a population on a topic that is so complex and so difficult to understand as, as what we're talking about today? So I think you've said something really important there, which is that the critical question at the end of the day is who decides? And my answer to that question is all of us, um, because the human genome in important respects belongs to all of us. And so we should all have a say. So then I think it's right to ask, well, how do we go about doing that in the real world? Well, there are people that are working on creative ways of using technology to start conversations. I mean, I think of the conversation we're having as part of that. Um, there are more sophisticated efforts. There's something called Worldwide Views, which looks at engaging people from around the world in you know, uh, intimate conversations in as much as that's possible. But I think the real thing is to actually try to develop a commitment to respectful engagement. And I think we don't have that right now, and not only with respect to this topic, but with respect to many topics. And so what I'm asking for is to broaden our understanding of what constitutes legitimate knowledge, 
broaden our understanding of which values, views, and perspectives we should listen to. When I argue for broad societal consensus, I don't think it's a Pollyannish kind of idea that we're all going to sit down and you know come up with 100% agreement. I think that would be foolish for me to try to defend that. But I'm not willing to let it collapse into majority rule because we know that might doesn't make right. And so in that context, what I am arguing for is that we find new ways of having respectful conversation and that the goal of that respectful conversation is to be sure that everybody's ideas have been heard. Not that everybody agrees with the outcome, because I don't think that second goal that everybody would agree on the outcome is achievable. But I do think the, the, the more restrained goal of trying to make sure that everybody's ideas have been heard and listened to is achievable. And I'm willing to say at the end of the day, even if I'm wrong, and I could be, if I'm wrong, we'll still be so much better for having tried. We still will then have dismantled the idea that this is decision-making for an elite few, whether that elite few is just the scientific community or those who are extremely wealthy and can pay for whatever it is that they want, or whether it's a certain group of policymakers. I'm trying to push that decision-making down to all of us, and then we have to take responsibility we have to take responsibility to become interested, to become engaged, to learn, to express our views, to cooperate, to struggle. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about what the narrative is, how this discussion might go. Here you have proponents of moving fast, let's say, who have a wonderful metaphor. It's editing. It's you cut and paste. You go in, you take this part out, you put another part in. As you've said yourself, it's analogous to editing a book. It's a very simple kind of process that relies on an everyday experience that many people may have or at least understand to say, this isn't such a scary, dangerous kind of thing. What is, uh, you know, it reminds me, Joseph Campbell, the, the mythologist, said, if you want to change the world, you have to change the metaphor. And I guess my question to you is, is the editing metaphor helpful or a hindrance in getting the kind of public discussion and engagement you want to have on this issue? Well, that's a good question. And at the end of the day, I guess I'm agnostic about that right now. So I don't know the answer insofar as it's not a perfect metaphor. It implies far more accuracy than is the case. It doesn't pay attention to the kinds of mistakes that can be made. So I didn't talk about them at the beginning, but let me just give you a quick example of two mistakes that can be really quite drastic. Because I did say this isn't available right now as a therapeutic intervention. It's in a research phase. And there is the risk of something we call off-target effects. And then there's the risk of on-target effects. An off-target effect is that you intended to make a cut in a specific place and you intended to either add or delete DNA and you do it in the wrong place. And we don't even know what the consequences of that could be depending on how drastic an error it is. But the other kind of mistake is you could have an on-target effect where you got exactly to where you went, to intended to get to. In other words, you got to where you wanted to make your cut and paste function, 
um, and something went wrong. Maybe you turned on a cancer gene. So yes, in some sense, the metaphor of editing is not appropriate, but I think it does do work in terms of helping people understand that it is this cut and paste function, which many people are familiar with. And it does help you to understand that it is the human hand that is involved, which is what I was trying to suggest was an important feature of this notion of designer baby. It's the human hand that is making the change. So for now, I have been using this metaphor but trying to be sure that I have opportunities to unpack the limitations of the metaphor. So thank you for the question and allowing me to, to do that and to unpack it. And, and just so that people know, before this, there were other metaphors, the most popular of which was genetic engineering. So just so that people know, that's really talking about the same thing. And other people have used the term genetic surgery. Um, so there are different kinds of metaphors out there. The one that for now seems to be predominant is genome editing. And as you pointed out, it perhaps is not as accurate as it needs to be. So I'm reminded of genetically modified foods and the people who wanted to slow down that process came up with the metaphor Frankenfoods to evoke the notion of Frankenstein and a monster that gets out of control. And that became a very effective shorthand way to alert people to the dangers of something that was seen as sort of a pos singularly positive evolution and progress of science. I'm wondering, is there something else that you've come across uh, it's, it's more like it's not an editing process because some of the editing may be in indelible ink, in a sense, that you can't change or that will uh, create a change that in turn can't be changed. Have you thought anything about how to move this narrative along so it's a more cautious narrative rather than just a promise without peril narrative? I don't know that I can, can answer that accurately for this particular area, but what I can do is point out, for example, some of the problems with metaphors generally by using the example you just provided of Frankenfoods. In a way, that metaphor doesn't do justice to the range of concerns that people were trying to raise. And so for some people, the worry was about the science and whether or not you would be creating some kind of you know, threat to human health by genetically modifying the food. And scientists were able to sort of poo-poo that and to then put it under this category of science literacy. People just don't understand how genes work, et cetera. But there were many people involved in that debate who were concerned about power and its distribution. There were many people in that debate who were concerned about access to specific foods that they understood would no longer be available once big agribusiness was there and able to use its genetic technology to find the product that could be grown most quickly, most cheaply, transported effectively, looked attractive, whatever their values were, not necessarily the values of the consumer. So I'm giving that as an example just to say that there were people that had a range of concerns. So people that were worried about small subsistence farmers being pushed out of a livelihood. And Frankenfoods doesn't capture that wide range. 
And I would say back to you that with heritable genome editing, I think there are similar concerns. Yes, some people are worried about the fact that children might be born that would have terrible, devastating diseases, disabilities, etc. But many other people would say, even if those children are healthy, we would have done a wrong thing. And I think what we're trying to do is to create space to understand, well, what does that mean? If it's safe and it's effective and you still want to say it's wrong, tell me why. And so one of the things we need to be very careful about in this discussion and debate is not to collapse all of those different views and values into just assurances about safety and efficacy. Yes, we want that. We don't want to hurt people. And we don't want to sell them a bill of goods. But beyond that, there has to be space in the conversation for saying it works. It's great. And we shouldn't do it. And we shouldn't do it for these kinds of reasons. Okay. Um, we just have time for one more question. And I know that uh, your life and your work, you are extremely concerned and work toward the issue around equity. And I know uh, from past uh, research I've done that scientific innovation does tend to raise all boats, but it tends to exacerbate the social economic status deficit. In other words, those who are more well-off benefit much more from inter innovation and progress than those who are less well-off, even though everybody may benefit to some extent. What are some of your equity concerns as this technology moves forward? Well, one of the things I write about in my book is issues of um, access and accessibility. And part of the reason I do that is I suggest that really this is a technology for the elite. It's a technology for the 1%. And what that will mean over time is that people who already have considerable privilege in terms of wealth and power will now be able to inscribe that privilege in their DNA. And I think that's especially true if we're thinking about it in terms of heritable enhancements and if we're thinking about it uh, in terms of enhancements. I said it together. I meant to say the two apart. If we're thinking about it as heritable editing and for enhancement purposes. So that's the context in which I worry about it. And I'm not alone. And this is not a new worry. I mean, if you go back through the literature for tens and tens of years, I'm not saying hundreds because I don't think there was the same kind of imagination until we actually understood DNA and its structure and genes and how they work. But certainly for tens of years, we have had very real concerns about the ways in which we might be manipulating DNA for the benefit of a few and at the expense of the many. And I think we need to, to think about that very clearly. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Bayless, again, for the incredibly important work you do and for taking the time to let us hear about it through the City Club. Now we're going to take a moment to recognize our sponsors, and we will return with questions from the audience in just a bit. Thank you.
Well, it's now time for us to take a few audience questions. If you haven't had a chance yet, it's not too late to submit your question. You can email City Club at questions at pdxcityclub.org or tweet at pdxcityclub using the hashtag state of the possible. Um, thank you, Dr. Wallach and Dr. Bayless. This was a really, really fascinating conversation. Although City Club is an organization that's largely focused on civics, um, political debates, uh, public policy conversations. I love when we have an opportunity to branch out and think about the ethical and legal and policy implications, uh, particularly of breakthroughs in science and innovation. So thank you, this has been really fascinating. I have a few questions here that pivot us from your focus on genome editing, um, but still say, stay really centered in the conversation around uh, social justice and equity, but are, are focused on some of your recent publications related to vaccines. The first question I have is, um, you've written in several contexts about the ethical questions related to immunity passports or vaccine certification for travel. And you raise concerns about the history of such policies being used to quote, weaponize white supremacy. You're quoted in the Lancet as urging us to fight tooth and nail against this policy approach. Dr. Bayless, can you expand on this a little? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that's very important is for people to understand the difference between what is called an immunity passport and a vaccine certificate. So I am staunchly against immunity passports. I actually do see a very positive future role for vaccine certificates. The problem with immunity passports is that the way they were thought of or envisaged early on is that this would be documentation for people who had contracted the virus and hopefully recovered and then were presumed to have immunity and the idea was that they could walk about freely without any of the public health constraints that the rest of us would have. And there were all kinds of scientific, practical, and ethical reasons why I thought that was deeply misguided. Vaccine certificates are different insofar as they are about immunity that we believe we can document because they are as a function of vaccines where we actually have empirical data from clinical trials. And an important difference in the background is that with immunity certificates, you actually are potentially undermining public health. Whereas with vaccine certification, you're promoting public health because you're encouraging people to go out and get vaccinated. You're not encouraging them to go out and get themselves infected. And I think the thing to appreciate is that with vaccine certificates, you actually are just following a pattern that's been long established with respect to crossing borders. So for example, I have a yellow card, and that's because for a long time now, if you wanted to go to certain countries where there were problems with yellow fever, you needed to be able to show that you were vaccinated. So there's history with vaccine certification for crossing borders, such that you're not putting yourself or other people at risk. And for that narrow purpose, I think there is room for vaccine certificates. But in both contexts, we really need to be worried about equity 
We very much need to be worried about accessibility, both to the vaccine in this case and to the certification. Uh, partly that's because we don't know if these certificates will only be digital. That's certainly the goal or objective for those who are working to develop it. But digital um, certif certification can be very challenging. Not everybody has a smartphone and not all countries will have the resources at their borders to be able to read that. But I'm arguing for that in a very narrow context, not for access to you know, sporting venues, not for access to accommodations or restaurants, et cetera, partly because in those venues, I think you risk inviting discrimination in a way that I don't think need be the case at borders when governments are managing that transition. But there's a lot more I could say about that in terms of issues of privacy, in terms of you know, the concerns one ought to have about the infrastructure around this. And I say that because I do believe eventually we will have vaccine certificates. It would be foolish of us not to have that. We have that for all vaccines. So we will have it for this vaccine. The issue is going to be how will we ensure that this tool, not unlike genome editing, is used for good and not for evil? How will it be helpful and supportive without undermining public health, without threatening the health and well being of those who don't have certification? Great, thank you. This next question actually has two parts um, one for each of you. It also related to vaccines. Um, in you, Dr. Bayless, in your uh, recent uh, column in the Tribune, you wrote about some of the ethical questions that are related to uh, vaccination prioritization. And you raise ethical questions that uh, are essentially a question about who is included in a community of care, a state, a nation, or the globe as a whole. You point out that leaders who are politically tied to one place, a state or a nation, are faced with a distinctive uh, are faced with a disincentive, sorry, I didn't read that right, faced with a disincentive to make ethical decisions globally. The question for you, Dr. Bayless, maybe this is a question for both of you, is, is the most ethical approach to global issues like a pandemic, climate and pollution issues, or even labor justice issues, always a global approach? Well, I think if you believe in solidarity, um, at some level, yes, it requires a global perspective. Now, whether that translates into a global approach may or may not be the case because you could have individual actors acting for the global good. One of the things that's really important for me, um, it's certainly a part of the book that I wrote, Altered Inheritance, but really it guides my work in all of what I do, and it certainly applies to the work I'm doing now on vaccines, is I ask myself and I ask others to entertain the following question. What kind of world do you want to live in? And I ask you then to think about your answer to that question relative to the technology or the tool or whatever is in front of you, and to think about the ways in which use of that tool could help all of us to flourish. And I say really clearly, I don't want to live in a competitive world where we think we can just set aside huge swaths of the population. I want to live in a world where we care about each other. And I've often said to those who will listen, that if I were to write a new book now, 
it could be the exact same book as Altered Inheritance because I would make the exact same points. I would just have a different case study. I would still be talking about the importance of having a global perspective of responding to each other as if we care. Isn't that the world we all want to live in? Knowing that we think of each other as our neighbor and that we respond to people in need? That's the world I want to live in. And the thing that's ironic to me about the current pandemic is we know it's a global crisis. We know that it's in our own self-interest to make sure that everyone is vaccinated. And yet we're sort of mindlessly nodding to what we know and then narrowly looking at what we do. Within the last couple of days, my province in Canada, Nova Scotia, had its vaccine taken to be given to Indigenous populations in the North. Our public health officer said that they were disappointed not to be getting the vaccine, but that they understood the decision the federal government had made. One of the things that's very interesting is that Canadians in other parts of the country started complaining on behalf of Nova Scotians. And it's on Twitter, you can go and look. And Nova Scotians tweeted back, thank you very much, but we're okay with that decision because we're looking after each other in our province right now. And we understand that somebody needed it more than us and we can wait our turn. I mean, that's there for people to see. And I wanna believe there are a lot of people like that in the world, right? Yeah, there might be sort of a few that really don't have that other kind of orientation, but honestly, I think there's a lot of good in the world and we just don't look for it and we don't celebrate it when we see it and we don't encourage it. And I think the way to get at that is to ask people to constantly have conversations. What kind of world do you want to live in? And what can you do to help build that world? And I think there's lots we can do. So I'm not a bioethicist, but having spent 50 years in public health, rooted in a philosophy of social justice as the guiding ethic of public health, I would just make three quick points. Number one is the principle of interconnectedness, is that we are all connected. The second thing is the notion of shared fate, that our fates rely on each other. And the third thing is that when we care for the most vulnerable, no matter who we are, we all benefit. So I would, I would just put forth those sort of guiding principles uh, as a way of thinking about shorthand how we approach these things. Interconnectedness, shared fate, and the benefit of everybody winning when it's the most vulnerable who are uh, approached because the benefits extend out. And if I can, I'd like to actually build on that because in my own work, I talk about it in terms of interdependence. And I actually right. think it's the dependence part that becomes important because we understand we are actually all frail. You know, at different moments in times, we are all dependent. Um, and I think sometimes we lose sight of that. We think we're autonomous and strong and we can do our own thing. So I, I would really, you know, encourage us to think about the interdependence and also to understand that at the end of the day, we all survive together or not on this planet. And, you know, that's one of the things I ask people to think about when you think about, you know, the environment, not just the genes. And I say that because very often when I talk about genome editing, it sounds like all I think about or know about are genes, but it's genes in an environment. And that environment is not just a physical environment. It's an interpersonal environment. We are embodied 
and we are fundamentally social beings. And too often we think about ourselves as rational beings and forget um, that rationality is not worth a whole lot if we're all by ourselves. Well, that is all of the conversation that we have time for today. Dr. Bayless, Dr. Wallach, I really wanna thank you for joining us. And thank you to the Wayne Morse Center for Law and Politics and to City Club Portland, volunteers and members for making today's conversation possible. This was really a fascinating deep dive into this topic and appreciated the conversation so much. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Take care. <laughs>